You're listening to Branch Out by Sycamore. There's many studies that show women actually, in many cases, have better outcomes than their male colleagues. They spend more time with their patients. So the fact that women are working just as hard, if not harder, than their male colleagues and are getting less compensation financially and also the currency that allows you to get promoted and become a national leader, all of those things really not only impact the healthcare workforce and lead to this increase in burnout that we see amongst women physicians, but also they directly impact the healthcare institutions and the patients we serve. So this organization that I founded, it's based on a variety of different ways to close the gap in healthcare. I'm Larson Hicks, CEO of Sycamore, and welcome to Branch Out, where I chat with healthcare professionals about broad-reaching topics like their careers in medicine, hobbies and pursuits outside the hospital, and everything in between. I'm joined this morning by Dr. Sheikha Jain. Uh, she is a hematologist, oncologist, triple-boarded physician um, that is also a, uh, a speaker and founder of, of Women in Medicine, among other things. So we're excited to have you on the, on, the, uh, on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Larson. Really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. Well, so... Okay, so just a, a quick kind of level setting. So what what Sycamore, uh, the reason why we do this podcast is we're really passionate about the idea that um, that physicians should have more autonomy, have greater autonomy, have greater control over their careers. I think there's a lot of overlap probably between the things that you're interested in and and this con this this idea that we have. Um, I, I think we share a lot of values there. We're we're really I, I think a future where more physicians have greater control over their careers, um, have more of a voice in how they how they practice medicine, and um, is gonna is a better future. Um, and so we see a lot of burnout in uh, uh, you know Sycamore does a lot of work in the emergency medicine world, especially, and we see a lot of burned out doctors. Um, and uh, and so one of the ways that we're seeing more doctors kind of take control is they're branching out, they're doing different things with their careers on top of their medical career, subsidizing, you know, their income with other, you know, with other ventures, taking their training in medicine and applying it to other areas. So that's something we're really interested in. And we really want to um, use this podcast as a way to inspire other physicians who maybe haven't, you know, thought outside the box yet to, to maybe look at, at branching out and trying something new. And so, um, so you're somebody who's definitely done that, and so we're excited to hear your story and and how you've you've uh, you've gotten to where you are and how and, and the different ventures that you're involved in. Um, so that's that's why we've got you here, and thank you for agreeing to come on. Thank you so much. I'm really excited for this conversation because I think there's so much to talk about in this yeah. space. So really looking forward to it. Good. Well, let's start. I, I'm I'm always interested in just starting by. You know, before we get into all the other you know, details, I'd like to just hear how did you get into medicine and, and, and how do you view um, the calling of, of a physician? Well, it's um, probably a typical story for many. My dad is actually a surgeon, but okay. in my house, my parents always told me from the beginning, you have to do what you love. So whether it's medicine, whether it's something else, whatever you do, you need to be passionate about it and you need to love it. So don't Choose medicine because you feel like you have to. Choose medicine if you want to. And I used to go on the weekends with my dad and round in the hospital, which was always really fun. And I loved um, even, you know, he's a surgeon and 
typical, stereotypical idea of a surgeon is that they're mean and gruff and um, <laughs> and they don't connect with their patients. And, right. You know, back in this back in the day, obviously. Um, and my dad was not like that. He made really great connections with his patients. We would be in the grocery store or the airport and people would come up to him and say, Dr. Jane, you saved my life, you know, or you saved my mom's life 50 years ago or whatever it might be. And my dad was always so just so personable with these people, like familiar almost with them. And to me, that was such a really incredible thing where, one, my dad remembered these patients from like 10, 15 years ago, which I thought was incredible. That is cool. I still think is incredible. Um, but he also developed these relationships with these patients where he was able to impact a part of their or their family members' lives. And they remembered him for years. And to me, that was a really cool part of somebody's life story to be a part of, where you can help somebody at some point in their lives where they need it the most. Um, and, you know, I, I went through college. I was really bad at taking tests. I went to the University of Chicago. I was bad at multiple choice tests. The MCAT was a disaster. I was like, I'm never going to do medicine. Um, but I started contemplating other jobs. And I was like, you know, I really, medicine is where my passion is. I care about the science and the pathophysiology, but I really care about that patient-physician connection and being able to help people on a grander scale. And so um, that's how I found myself kind of navigating a path into medicine. And I don't regret it ever. I think that healthcare has changed. My dad and I still talk a lot about the ways that things have changed. And we talk about physician autonomy because he ran a uh, he started and ran a private practice. And he was a, he was a president of a, I don't even know, hundreds of people, um, multi-specialty group as well. Wow. And he he was in private practice, but affiliated with academics. So he kind of got a feel, a feel for both. And um, we talk a lot about how physicians have lost autonomy and how to help them regain it, both in clinical practice and outside of clinical practice. So I think it's I think it's an important conversation. And you're absolutely right. There's a lot of things fueling into burnout. And one of those is the loss of physician autonomy over the last several decades. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's interesting because I think it's affecting physicians differently in every specialty. You know, there's different ways that they're losing that um, connection, that direct connection with patients and and kind of control. Um, and I'm sure it's different for you in, in your specialty. What what led you to hematology and oncology? I initially, funny enough, when I started med school, wanted to be a pediatrician. And then I wanted to be a surgeon. Then I wanted to be a cardiologist. I went through the whole gamut. I wanted to be a neurologist at one point. Um, and so I decided to do internal medicine first because I said, well, at least if I do internal medicine, then I can I have time to figure out what I want to do after yeah. that. Anything. Um, and then my second year of residency, I rotated on the inpatient heme service, actually. And I just saw again for the first time, I felt that real connection that the physicians had with their patients. And I mean, they really it's such a privilege because they let us into these really intimate parts of their lives and they trust us with their lives. Totally. And it was just such a beautiful thing to see. And not even, you know, obviously, Hemonk can be very sad sometimes as well. But I had some mentors who did a really amazing job of helping patients navigate end of life and hospice care and palliative care. And so even when there's not anything we can do from the treatment side, to have that relationship with your patient where you can help them navigate what is a very, very difficult time and help their families and kind of be there um, as that person who can help them make informed decisions. I think that to me really struck me. And around that time, immunotherapy was becoming a really hot topic. Um, and so I, I realized that, you know, between the exciting new innovations in science and then really the core of why I do what I do, which is 
that doctor-patient relationship, Hemonk was just the place for me to be. That's very cool. Yeah, it's a great blend of, you know, I, th- I think that there's, it seems like there's some physicians who are really drawn to the the sort of technician side, you know, like surgeons, like just, you know, I fix things, you know, and it's satisfying to, f- to feel that satisfaction of, I went in there, I put my hands on it, I fixed it, you know, and I'm done. Um, and then there's kind of the caring side of, you know, dealing with somebody's um, chronic illness or a long-term um, illness like cancer and uh, that they don't always, you know, th- that you can't always uh, treat, right? Successfully. Yeah. And I will say, I do sometimes look back and think, why didn't I become a surgeon? Because I, I love fixing things. I loved surgery. I mean, I loved I loved that feel of being in the OR. I mean, it really was something that I was really drawn to. And my my dad and I always joke, he's like, you could have taken over my practice. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it was um, it was the right decision for me. And I will say, I think surgery has changed. I mean, some of it hasn't changed at all. But I feel like a lot more surgeons these days I'm seeing do the fixing part, but then also have that that discussion and informed discussion and and in the past, it was much more, I feel, patriarchal. And I, I hope and I feel like we're moving more towards, you know, partnering with patients. And yeah, obviously, the patient's not going to do the surgery, but at least having patients feel like they're a part of the decision making or they understand what's going on. So, um, yeah, I, I look back and wonder how my life would be different if I'd ended up going into surgery. And I think it would be very different than it is now. But um, but I, I have such a great deal of respect for my surgery colleagues. I went uh, about a month ago to Oklahoma to visit the um, the surgery center of Oklahoma of Oklahoma in Oklahoma City, and I don't know if you're familiar with these guys, but it's a it's a crazy crazy thing that they've done. I'm I'm just incredibly impressed. Um, they basically started a a cash only, no insurance um, pr- surgery center, and. And they've got, I mean, I think they've got about, I think they do about 300 procedures now. Um, they've, they partner with every surgeon in the area. Um, but it's just an incredible thing. You can go on their website, you can select from a menu, you know, click on a body part and it, you know, drops down menu of all of the different, you know, potential procedures that you might need. And then it displays right there a price of just the cash price of what it's going to cost. Wow. Yeah. And, and the cool thing, you know, just digging deeper into it, you know, the physicians, you know, just the whole practice is designed around the patient physician experience, both parties, you know, they want it to be an, ex, an a, a wonderful experience for everybody involved. And, um, and the other crazy thing is, is, um, the pay for the physicians is like sometimes double or triple what insurance pays. Um, Wow. So it's, it's a really, it's a really cool thing. I, I think it's, um, I hope it's the, fu- it's maybe a future, um, a future thing in, 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 uh, in, in surgery to see more and more folks kind of, you know, uh, I, I think insurance and, um, and hospital systems and just all of the bureaucracy involved in those things, the third party payer thing, I just think, it's a really neat thing to see people figuring out ways to to practice outside of that system. And I, I'm excited to see where where those things go. Yeah, it's funny you say that. So my dad actually retired from clinical medicine and started a consulting company where he helps uh, surgeons and cardiologists and whoever wants to start outpatient surgical centers, not pay, not cash pay, that's yeah. still insurance. But he, because in his practice, he had one of the first um, outpatient vascular labs where they could do outpatient procedures, 
attached to their to their clinic. And so he is now in order to help physicians regain some of their autonomy so that they have control of the scheduling and they have control of like what procedures they do and stuff. So um, I I am I'm not sure if the pendulum has swung so far now that we can't bring it back. But I feel like there's enough people who care about physician autonomy and care about kind of trying to regain control that yeah. we will start to see more and more, hopefully, of these types of innovative ideas popping up. Yeah, I, th- I think it's exciting. Um, and and I'd encourage, you know, w- w- next time you talk to to Pops, let them know about the surgery center. It's really cool. And they were so welcoming. And I, I a, a surgeon friend of mine um, and, and another entrepreneur friend of mine met up out there together and we they they gave us the whole day and just talked with us and showed us around the facility and ended up going out to dinner and just just hearing the stories you know uh, all the stories of of the practice and uh it was just really neat um and i th- i think um i think it's exciting so okay so um so yeah you've kind of threaded that needle of you know a a, a, a specialty that really engages in the part of your brain that likes research and likes the technical scientific side um and and also the the caring you know aspect right um so and and you mentioned amino oncology i'm i'm actually taito who who's on my team um and i both worked together in a, a biotech company that was focused on oncology and we were involved in um helping uh companies develop amino oncology drugs um back in the day. So Keytruda and Opdivo and a lot of those, wow. a lot of those drugs. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> a lot of those, those folks were, we were involved in, in kind of their preclinical work. Um, we were, we were just, uh, we supplied, we basically came up with, uh, helped them build panels of patients with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, bi- biological, sp- you know, samples like, um, blood and, and, you know, um, over a time series or whatever, but whatever, you know, whatever the researchers needed, that was, we were kind of like a preclinical CRO uh, company that we worked with. So anyway, um, so that's something that I'm, I, I think is fascinating and, uh, and, and, but I haven't been engaged in, in a couple of years. So what's, what's going on in that world right now? <laughs> so much. So immunotherapy, you know, like the agents, like you talked about, like Kytruda and Nivolumab, they're drugs that are checkpoint inhibitors that right. the way I describe it is they inhibit inhibitors. So your immune system is supposed to shut down and when it's done doing its job. But a lot of times, especially patients who develop cancer, their immune system malfunctions somewhere and the tumor is able to trick it into believing there's no foreign invader. So what the what these drugs do is they keep your immune system activated. So instead of a drug targeting the cancers, the um, your own immune system targets the cancers, which is super cool. And one of the coolest things I think about immunotherapy is it doesn't just work when you give it because it's your immune system. It actually can work for months, sometimes years after you've even stopped wow. receiving therapy, because sometimes it changes your immune system to the point where it just handles the cancer. So that I think is super cool. Um, we're seeing a lot of advances with combination therapy, with immunotherapy and chemotherapy together, immunotherapy agents come together Um melanoma and kidney cancer and lung cancer were like the beginning of all of this amazing, um, these amazing innovations. Now we're starting to see some benefits in GI oncology. Um, We're starting to see it a little bit in other malignancies. Um, But really the the like bells of the ball when it comes to immunotherapy are lung cancer and kidney cancer and melanoma. 
And as a GI oncologist, I'm constantly trying to figure out how to get more immunotherapy into my patients. But there's such a small select group of people who respond in that category that there's hopefully more data to come. But it's um, it's a very exciting time because people who before were living, you know, six months are now living years with things like metastatic melanoma and metastatic kidney cancer and metastatic lung cancer. So it's just a it's amazing the amount of advances we've been able to do in that space. Yeah, I think the um, yeah, the the tapping in essentially to the power of of your immune system and that that memory that your that your T cells or B cells or whatever it is has uh that's 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 so cool. Um what a what an exciting time to be in that specialty. Um so so tell us okay, so you've you've been how long have you been practicing um in in your current specialty? Uh so I have been a board certified hemoc doc for Six years now, I think it is almost almost seven years. Yeah. Okay. I finished my residency in 2011, so I've been a board certified physician for ten years, um, and then finished fellowship about seven years ago. Awesome. And uh, and in that time, it sounds like you also uh, started a family. I did. I have three young children. My daughter is seven, and then I have twins who are four. That's awesome. So so crazy busy uh, household. And also sounds like crazy busy uh, professional life. So, so what a what a challenge. How, how do you balance all of it, and how do you think about? Or is balance even a thing? Yeah, I don't balance. I realize it's like I would get frustrated that I wasn't balancing, and now I I tell my family and I tell my work I'm going to be failing at one aspect of my life on a daily basis. The question is, what aspect of my life do I decide I need to be failing at that day, which is the one that needs to be prioritized? Like I um, posted on social media earlier this week. My mom fail of the week was my kids needed ugly Christmas sweaters for school on Friday. And I assumed my kids would be fine wearing what they wore last year because they all still fit. And my seven-year-old daughter, when I told her, I was like, you can wear the one you love. And she said, mommy, last year I got uglier sweater for wearing that. I need something different. You can't wear the same thing. And I said, honey, no one's going to remember. And she said, no, they will remember. And I said, okay, well, your brothers are going to wear the same one. And she turned to her brothers and said, boys, you cannot wear the same shirt as last year. So the boys turned to me and they were like, mommy, we're not wearing this oh, shirt. Oh, that anymore. backfired. <laughs> that backfired. Oh, so, man. So I had, uh, it was a bit of a disaster. And I posted on social and people had a bunch of great ideas. And um, we have a babysitter who I love, who's been with us for years. Um, and I texted her. I was like, what do I do? And she said, you know what? There's a store near me where they always end up having these last minute things. So she went, she FaceTimed me. And she, thank goodness, managed to find three ugly sweaters that I have to show my kids tomorrow <laughs> for approval. Yeah. Because not, then I don't, then I'm just going to be making my own out of like, you know, duct tape and, and glue guns and bubble, like, what is that, bubble paint? Yes. That'll be yes. Yes. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Nicely done. Well, I like that. I like the idea of, you know, this idea that, that, cause, cause I do think there's a, and maybe people are starting to change even just the terminology of like work-life balance, it's not really a thing. It's kind of more about harmonizing or, or, you know, finding a, finding a, uh, a, 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 you know, balance is, is the term, you know, that, that we're so used to, but, but it's not really, um, you know, it's, it's, it's finding a way to, to have all these things mesh together in a way that's, that's, uh, that works for you and your family. And every, every family is different, right? Um, a different kind of division of labor and different, way of approaching, you know, doing life, right? Right. And I mean, the buzzword these days is work-life integration, which I 
don't really oh, I used to like it. And then I talked to my husband and he was like, that is a horrible phrase. He said, because then it sounds like your work is is becoming a part of your everyday life. He was like, we need to have some boundaries. And I said, yeah, that's that's true. One thing that I do that I don't think was as present in medicine in the past, and I actually do it because my dad did it, which is I'm very open about my family with my with the, my colleagues. So my dad, even as a surgeon, he his group was run very much where family came first. So he would tell his partners, if your kid has a tennis match or a soccer game or a recital, like block your schedule, we will cover you. And a lot of people back in the day didn't talk about their families. It was just kind of, you know, something you don't talk about when you're at work. Now, what I do, and maybe I share too much, but I'm very open with my nurses, with my colleagues. Like we lost our afternoon childcare person a couple of weeks ago, which yeah. has been a nightmare because she picked my kids up from school. And so I talked to my nurse and I was like, I'm going to have to modify my clinic schedule because I nobody there's nobody to pick up my kids from school. And um, and other people said, you should have made up some other excuse. You're going to look irresponsible. And I said, listen, I'm not going to lie about why I have to move my clinic up a little bit. I need to pick up my kids like my kids have a mom. I am a mom and a doctor and somebody needs to pick them up from school. I'm not going to say, oh, I've got, you know, another obligation because then it's going to it. I, doesn't seem authentic to me. And so I'm very open about that. And my to the credit of my my staff that I work with, they're all super helpful and very accommodating. And and they know that I don't ask for things. I don't take time off just because I don't, you know, ask for accommodations just because it's sure. really what it, like there's I can't physically be in two places at once. So I think that one thing that a lot of men and women have started to do and I think would should continue doing is is be open about their families or about their lives if they feel comfortable. Some people don't feel comfortable doing that, and that's also completely fine. But I think we need to normalize the fact that physicians have lives outside of their workday. You know, if if I get paged at nine o'clock or at eight o'clock at night, it's very likely you're going to hear my kids in the background. I'm not going to go in another in the closet and shut the door and you know and pretend like I'm in the hospital. People and. I think patients have started to understand that as well. Like I called a patient on a Friday night at like 8.30 and she said, Dr. Jane, why are you calling me at 8.30 on a Friday night? And I said, well, this came back and I know you were really anxious and we, I wanted to talk to you about it. But she was like, go spend time with your family. So I think that it it is helpful to have that kind of level of, of openness to a certain extent with with your staff and in even your patients. I mean, my patients bring my kids gifts all the time, which um, like around Christmas and things like that, or they ask yeah. about that or ask for pictures. So it's, I think it's nice to have that ability to have those conversations with your patients and your, and your staff. I think this idea of integration, I, I, I think it's something to lean into. And, and, and I don't think it's a good thing that our lives are so compartmentalized. You know, I think, I think we want to be who we are 24 hours a day, you know, seven days a week, right? 365 days a year and not feel like, okay, for this part of the day, I need to pretend to be this kind of person. And for this part of the day, I need to pretend to be that kind of person. And I think what what your husband was pushing back on, I totally, you know, I, I'd push back on him. I, I think, and I think we've kind of seen this with COVID. It's kind of been a good sort of like mass experiment of what happens when Kids have to be home more. Parents have to be home more, work remotely. Um, what happens? And I think we've seen, yeah, we've seen a lot of people that just hate it and can't figure out how to do life that way. But I think a lot of folks have found that, hey, this is actually kind of nice. Like this, like being here with my kids, 
being more involved, more engaged, eating at home more. Um, this is all kind of sweet. Um, and, and I think, I think the, uh, one of the, um, yeah, one of the, so I've, I've been obsessed with this idea of the household and this idea that the household historically is, is not like the place you go to sleep and recreate. It's actually, it's actually an economic, um, institution. You know, the household is sort of what produces, um, it's, it's where work happened and the whole family was a part of that. Right. And so I'm really interested in, in, in less of, I, I think the more you integrate your family and your work and your life, um, the less you, the, the less, um, I don't know. I, I think it, 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 it puts meaning and value back into the home, which I, I think we've sort of taken all meaning and value um, and, and taken it and put it somewhere else. Like it's in your career, it's in your work, um, it's in education or whatever. And it's not in the stuff that happens at home, which I, I, I think, um, is, isn't good. Yeah. I, I will say, I think my husband's concern, it actually happened right around the beginning of COVID. And it was because this work-life integration was turning into me working 18 hour days and constantly being on my phone and not being present for the family. Sure. Even when I was with them, I wasn't really with them. And I mean, a part of it was because it was the beginning of COVID. I run an organization that is focused on public health messaging that started because of the pandemic. So I was constantly being asked to do, you know, new segments or interviews or write op-eds and do all this stuff. And so even on the weekends when I was supposed to not be technically working, I was still doing work. And so I think that was his concern where this work-life integration was turning into me working 18-hour days. And he's like, you're going to burn yourself out, which I mean, I really, a year and a half into the pandemic, I got to the point where I was feeling overworked, overstressed, and totally burned out. And I think a part of it was because I wasn't able to not compartmentalize because I 100% agree with you. You need to be able to figure out how to balance, balance as much as you can, the mm -hmm. work and the life component. But I think the challenge with like social media and breaking news all the time and the constant need to be responding to people right away, we have gotten to a point now where we sometimes have to put away the phone or put away the computer and be present, which it wasn't until about six months ago when my husband was like, listen, I love you. You're going to kill yourself. He's like, this is too, you're working too hard. You're working too many hours. You're not sleeping enough. He was like, and you're suffering and your family's going to suffer. He's like, and soon it's going to be too late. It's going to be the kids are going to be in high school and you're going to look back and think, oh my gosh, why was I doing all of that? And so I think, I think that goes back to your initial question of have I found balance? And I, I think it's it's really, it's something that I'm reevaluating every day. My parents always say to me, the, the next day is always a day that you can be better than you were the day before. So every day is a day for you to be better than you were the day before. And so I'm trying, and I'm trying to teach my kids that, where yesterday you made a mistake, yesterday, you know, you threw a tantrum or you didn't listen to mommy. Tomorrow, what are you going to do to be better? And so I'm trying really hard to live my life that way, both in work and in in life. Like I before the, we started recording, I was telling you how I bought exactly zero Christmas gifts so far. And that's something that is OK, because I don't want my kids to feel like they need to be getting a lot of gifts. But on the same token, I need to get something. So it's you've got to figure out how to balance these things and you've got to figure out what's which ball is going to be kind of in the process of dropping every day. You just have to make sure you catch it the next day. 
Well, I, I, I think everything you said is great. Um, I, you know, I, I, I do, and maybe I'm, you know, I've, I've got a, I've got a hammer and everything's a nail right now. So, so, you know, <laughs> I, I'm obsessed with this idea, but, but I, I, I do wonder if, you know, the idea of husband and wife and kids all going in separate directions. I wonder if, if, um, there's a way, I don't wonder, I know that this exists in a lot of places. You know, historically, farms are a great example of this, where it's like, Mom, dad, kids, everyone's engaged in the work. So it's like you don't get to leave work at home, but but it's also something you're doing with your family. You talked about your dad, you know, um, wanting you maybe to take over the practice if you've gone to surgery. That's a that's a great example. I've got three physician friends now that I think of it who are taking over family practices um, and and or are working in a family practice, which is a cool way, again, to kind of integrate, you know, the family um, in into the work um, so that there's, you know, there are things that for me, I've got my oldest kids are all boys and, um, you know, they're getting to that age where they're, they're going to be out on their own soon. And so I'm really keen to find ways to teach them about work, you know, teach them about, um, about being a professional and, uh, and what better way to do it than just to work alongside them, you know? Yeah. No, I love that. And that's why, you know, I used to when I went to round with my dad on the weekends, I would see what he was doing. And, you know, he used to my dad is also a major entrepreneur. He started a bunch of businesses while he was in private practice. So he did a lot of cool stuff and he'd have like videos of surgical equipment that we'd watch at home. And I mean, it was it was very cool. And I think that's how he kind of integrated us into his work. And we'd go to his office all the time. We His whole staff has known me since I was like a baby. And so they they have seen me grow. Many of them now give me life advice. Like I'll, yeah. I'll call them about things. So it's just, it's nice. It's nice to have that. And I think talking about, I mean, obviously as an oncologist, sometimes it's hard for me to talk about my work. My kids, I don't want them to be sad about, you know, my patients who pass away or things like that. Like I have patients who've given gifts to my kids that are no longer with us. And so my daughter will ask about them. And so we have conversations about death and dying, but Again, I don't want that to be the crux of what we talk about when it comes to my job. And the cool thing is, because I've been home, you know, doing I when I'm in clinic and in the hospital, I'm obviously there. But a lot of work I do, like the TV interviews and whatnot, are at from home. So they get to see me doing that aspect of my job as well. So um, my daughter asked, what does it take to get on TV? And I said, well, you need to work really hard. You need to go to this. You need to do this. And I, so I, I said, you have to do something that people want to talk to you about. You don't just go on TV to go right. on TV. And so it's life lessons in a variety of different ways, you know, teaching kids how to work hard, teaching them, um, you know, action, reaction, how to how to get to a point, how to work hard to to get the the benefits down the line. But it is it's a constant process of trying to figure out what to talk about and what not to talk about. <laughs> Well, so, okay. So this kind of segues into, you've got, you've got several other things you're doing outside of the practice and you've already kind of alluded to it. So, so what are the other, what are the other things that you've, you've picked up um, over the years here? So I actually have um, founded or co-founded two separate nonprofits. Um, The first one is a nonprofit that I founded called, it's a 501c3 called Women in Medicine. Um, and it's a organization dedicated to closing the gender gap in healthcare because there are so many disparities and inequities that exist in the healthcare workforce as well as in healthcare as a whole. I mean, structural racism and systemic racism has been discussed so much in the last two years when it comes to the healthcare system. And another topic that's being discussed quite a bit is this issue of the disparities in the workforce where 
women are getting paid less, women are getting less recognition, less leadership opportunities. And all of these things actually translate into suboptimal patient care because there are numerous studies that show when leadership is diverse, the organizations and the patients benefit. And there's many studies that show women actually, in many cases, have better outcomes than their male colleagues. They spend more time with their patients. So the fact that women are working just as hard, if not harder, than their male colleagues and are getting less compensation financially and also the currency that allows you to get promoted and um, and become a national leader, all of those things really not only impact the healthcare workforce and lead to this increase in burnout that we see amongst women physicians, but also they directly impact the healthcare institutions and the patients we serve. So this organization that I founded, it's based on a variety of different um, ways to close the gap in, in healthcare. So number one, we have educational components where we have a summit that happens every year. We have longitudinal leadership programming. We actually have the first of its kind allyship programming for male leaders in healthcare, hmm. where we've created longitudinal continuing medical education leadership programming for men to be more inclusive leaders. Because many men come to me and say, how can I help? What can I do to help address these disparities? But they don't know what to do. So they, they want to help, but they don't know how. So we've created leadership programming to help the men who are in leadership positions make these changes at their level. Um, we also have a speakers bureau that we're launching. We have a research lab focused not only on addressing the problems that exist, but also focused on addressing solutions and how to make things better. Um, and we have a huge component that's focused on mentorship, sponsorship, and bringing up the next generation of students and trainees and helping them really change the system from within. Because as we always talk about, we can't change the system without everybody being on board. And it's I mean, right now is the time to do it because it's been too long that the system has been has been structured in a way that really is at the detriment for those people who didn't actually create the system. So um, so that's one nonprofit that I'm the president and founder of. OK, cool. And then a second nonprofit that I co-founded actually during the pandemic that I alluded to is called Impact, which is focused on public health messaging and really addresses the inequities um, in healthcare at a more uh, patient level. Where one, we know that the pandemic response, the national response was suboptimal. Um, the messaging was not put out in the way that it should have that I think is still impacting us now two years into the pandemic. Um, and we created this organization to amplify the voices of healthcare workers, to advocate for evidence-driven policies, and to really create um, a place where anyone can come and find real-time information on what to believe, what not to believe, facts and myths relating to the pandemic, public health messaging. Um, and we've done that through, you know, TV interviews, through writing op-eds, through petitions, through an infographic series. We've spoken at academic conferences. Um, we've been featured in like Time Magazine. So we're trying to hit it from all aspects where we're addressing the patient side by going to popular media, but then also addressing the, the physician side we partnered with organizations like the Illinois State Medical Society, um, and this is our shot to um, to really work on the physician side and the healthcare worker side as well. And the organization is made up of people. It's multidisciplinary. So we've got physicians, nurses, um, social workers, pharmacists, uh, community members. So it's a really cool thing that we created at the beginning of this pandemic that is uh, that's that seems to still be needed two years in. Yeah, totally. 
Yeah, this is a topic that comes up a lot in on this podcast is is the question of evidence based medicine and um and the role of skepticism, you know, in medicine. It seems like um, you know, physicians are are supposed to be scientists, you know, they're supposed to be objective, they're supposed to look at the data. Um, and this is part of the problem, I think, with the autonomy that I think autonomy addresses is is physicians uh, you know, all of those things, they may be scientists, they may, they may look at the data for one, there's too much data, right? You can't ever even, you know, pretend like you can keep up that you just can't. Um, like I read in the book that if a resident was to, to start reading two journals, scientific journals, uh, a day, um, at the end of a year, they would have, I think, um, like 200 years worth more of reading uh, to, to catch up on um, that, that just that just came out that year. Um, so it's it's just, you know, it's impossible. There's there's a there's there's so much data. Um, but but the uh, but the autonomy thing is is, I think, another real challenge where there's so much pressure to you know, it, so much of medicine's become politicized or it's become. Um, it, you know, there, there are people who are scared of losing their jobs, you know, if they say one thing or another. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a important, really, really important, um, area to be, to be, um, to be active in is trying to get physicians to have more freedom, you know, to, to, uh, be evidence-based, you know, be objective, be skeptical even. Yeah. And, you know, the challenge that's happened during this pandemic is there's preprints that come out or there's, you know, Things that are people are talking about before they're actually um, really studied, and part of it is because a lot of what we're doing. I, I the analogy I make is we're building the plane and flying it at the same time. Yeah, right. Where the first year of the pandemic, we really were learning as we were treating, and it was. I mean, it's a mass casualty event. It really was a mass casualty event, and it continues to be that. I mean, we're losing. I think I read a statistic where we're losing the same number of people we lost on 9-11 every single day in this country right now. I mean, it's it's just terrifying how badly our the public health messaging damaged really our ability to have a good pandemic response. If if everybody was wearing masks and everybody was getting vaccinated, we would not be in this situation we're in now. But as you said, it's become so politicized and the sad thing is there's a lot of things that I want to say online that I can't necessarily say because I'm worried I'm going to get attacked. But on the same token, we need to be saying those things because if we don't fill that space, then these people who don't have the accurate information, people who are doing it for their own benefit or their own product that they want to sell, those are the people who fill in that space. And so, you know, the WHO calls it an infodemic. And one of the things that we really focus on in impact is using that evidence-based science and using those trusted healthcare worker voices to get the messaging out there and advocate for for policies driven by um, by evidence and by science. And it's getting harder and harder to do. I mean, now in my clinic, even patients who aren't vaccinated yet, I'm almost scared to ask them why they haven't gotten vaccinated and talk to them because I get yelled at more than I can count with people who normally, you know, would trust me to give them chemotherapy. So right. it's it's a very interesting world we're currently living in. It, I tell my husband all the time, I feel like it's a little dystopian. Um, but I think I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm constantly optimistic that we are heading towards something better because I'm seeing so many physicians and healthcare workers use their voices in a way to try to advocate for this type of messaging and and really putting themselves out there and getting their friends and colleagues to try to do it as well. Because really, you know, at the beginning of medicine, 
we were meant to educate our communities, which our communities were our friends, our family, our neighbors. Yeah. Now our community has become a global community. So it's a little bit more stressful than it probably was, you know, talking to somebody over dinner about why they should be taking their blood pressure medications is a little bit different than speaking on a national or international stage about why this is important. But I think it's what's necessary to help our global community, not just our communities that we live within. Yeah. And I think the thing that the thing that I've that I've been really interested in and and struggling with is that that I think, um, you know, there's a, there's so many layers to it, but there's there are yeah, there's there's these global platforms and there are these massive global companies that have so much money to make and and uh, on on these different you know, treatments or whatever it is. And there's and there's just a lot of mis- distrust of of those sources. Um, and then and then I think people look at the physicians or the healthcare workers who aren't epidemiologists um, and, and necessarily or or who, um, you know, I, th- I think the thing that I hear from from ER doctors all the time uh, outside of conversations about the, the about covid is is they don't like being a rubber stamp. Um, they don't like being just an MPI number to use to bill insurance um, and then and then. To have that come full circle for the healthcare system or the pharmaceutical companies to tell them you have to say this message, um, and it's like, well, what if I disagree with that message? Um, what if I'm looking at the data and I don't? And so I think I think that the challenge is I think uh, that the everyday you know layperson is trying to figure out who who can I trust. Um, it yep. feels like this. It feels like these people over here are just are just shills, you know, for some big corporate you know entity that's that's very, very well funded and backed with a lot of political power. Um, and you know, who are the voices that, that actually have my interests in mind and are just doing it for, for job security, you know? Um, right. and I think it's a, and I think, I think more and more physicians having that kind of, um, that kind of transparency, you know, about, Hey, look, these are the, these are the questions I have. These are the doubts I have. These are the, things I've looked at and I don't think makes sense, you know? Um, and, uh, I, I think more and more of that, um, in one-on-one conversations, um, I, I've seen, you know, I've got a good friend who's a, a primary care doctor and he's, he's not, you know, I mean, he's never been, um, anti-vax or, uh, but he's also, um, he's also, he, he's in a community that's very anti-vax and his whole thing has been, you know, there are people who he doesn't think need to be vaccinated, you know, and and trying to be just, you know, have the honesty to say, here's who I really think should. And you're one of those people, you know, and here's who I don't think it's a, as big a deal. And I don't you know, I think if you if you choose not to, that's that's a that's a fine decision. Um, but being able to, you know, to have that nuance and deal with the end of one uh, that that physicians are are that I mean, that's your calling, right, is is dealing with the end of one in front of you. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I tell my patients because I get, I have, I mean, we have these conversations. I have them on a day. Yeah. I have this afternoon. I'm sure. I have five conversations about this this afternoon. I, I literally tell my patients, I'm like, here's the deal when it comes to anything relating to the pandemic. Number one, I actually don't get paid money to talk about this. I tell patients that very clearly. I'm like, I actually lose money the longer I talk to you about this because it's preventing me from seeing other patients and billing them our view. I said, so that's number one. Every patient, I tell that because a lot of them think that we get paid the more people we get vaccinated. And I said, that that's number one, a fact that I do not get paid and I actually lose money talking to you about this. 
Number two, obviously, I care deeply about you as a person because I've been taking care of you for X number of weeks, months, or years. And you trusted me to give you medication. You trusted me to do this. You trusted me to give you chemo. That is very toxic. I talk to them about how the vaccine works and the risks and benefits. And I also tell them that my entire family is vaccinated. And when I tell them that, I say, I tell them who? I say my mom, my dad, my in-laws, my brother, my seven-year-old, my four-year-olds literally went up to the reception and said, I want to get my vaccine. And my kids hate shots, mind you. Mm -hmm. But my twins went up to the receptionist and said, we want our vaccine. And she had to tell them, no, you need to wait till you're a little older until the new e-way comes through. But so I have these conversations very honestly with my patients. And I ask them, what are your concerns? Tell me why you haven't gotten it yet. And we have very open, I mean, the ones who are willing to talk, some just yell at me and, and don't want to talk about it. And I, um, I still talk with them and I, I'm very open with them. And I tell them, I understand you're angry and I understand you've read a lot of things online that or talk to family members or done your own research that make you feel like this is not necessary for you. But and then I tell them why I feel like it is. I actually I had a couple who were in their 30s um, who had uh, not gotten vaccinated yet. And I spent over an hour talking to them. And later on, one of my colleagues was like, why did you waste so much time talking to them? You're now an hour behind in clinic. And I said, well, they have young kids and they're in a high risk community and the wife has comorbidities that put her at very high risk from dying if she gets COVID. Um, and I I left. The, the husband was not interested and the wife was like, uh, maybe. Um, and I assumed they weren't going to get vaccinated. And then I got a message from their primary care doctor a month later saying, thank you so much. They both are now fully vaccinated. And it's because you spent that time with them. This is the thing that that we've lost as doctors, rather than being teachers, um, have become you know, prescription writers, and you know they've really become sort of the um, the authorization code that you know the hospital or whoever it is needs to 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 bill, you know, and and uh, and chart you know fill out charts so they can submit them to insurance, and and I think uh, I think what you did there is 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 what physicians are called to, you know, I mean, that's the work you're called to. And, and especially if somebody's high risk and I mean, you know, that it's, it's important. And I think that's the, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I have this conversation. We had a, we had a physician on the show who's a uh, cardiologist, um, who doesn't, who doesn't, um, believe in, um, treating, um, treating, uh, high cholesterol, um, necessarily. I mean, it's, it's a risk factor, but he, he has a, a much, he's really studied it. Um, he himself, you know, was at high risk of heart disease. Um, he does open heart surgeries you know, for a living. This is what he does. And um, he's learned that that there's there's more complex factors at play. It's metabolic health and and there's more to it. And and a big part of it is the the simple answer is you've got high cholesterol. I'm just going to send you off with a prescription for, you know, for a statin. Um, when you're looking at a person that there's much bigger issues, <laughs> there's much bigger dietary and health issues that need to be addressed. Um, and so that, but that, that easy button of, well, we're treating it, you know, we, we've written a prescription, we're treating it. Let's, let's move on to the next person. So I think it's great. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I think it's important to remember, like we need to look at the whole person, right. And we need to, when we talk about holistic care, that doesn't mean just, you know, vitamins and, and minerals and not the traditional medications, but it also doesn't mean just the medications you need to figure out how, to marry the two and you need to figure out how to use both of them to the benefit right. of the patient. I will say my biggest concern right now when it comes to the pandemic and as you were talking about like physician autonomy and physicians making their own decisions, 
I think that one big concern that has really been laid bare during this pandemic is that there are physicians who do not follow evidence and who are making decisions for their own, you know, put, putting money in their own pockets. They've got stock in a certain drug. I'm not even going to name the drugs, but there's they've got stock in a certain drugs that were really toted as drugs that could help you. But in actuality, they're very dangerous for and not beneficial at all. So I think the big challenge that patients have these days is figuring out which physicians to trust, because there is a contingent of physicians who are respected in certain circles who are doing things that are actually the antithesis to what healthcare is supposed to be, which is they're not providing healthcare based on fact or evidence. They've found their own facts or they've manufactured their own facts for their own personal gain. And I think that is something we need to be really careful on as we move forward, because just having the title of doctor does not actually mean that you are the end all authority. You need to also be a doctor who is focused on patient care and focused on doing what's best for your patients, as opposed to just what's best for your bottom line. I have no problems with physicians making money and, and, and being very, very successful. I'm a physician. I would like to be very, very successful. But I think when it comes to the detriment of the patients, like some of these physicians who are out there toting drugs that are non-effective or, or doing dangerous work and and spouting misinformation. I think that's what we need to be really careful at the nuance. And But I agree, there's a lot of times where we've become, you know, Epic or any of our EMR systems, I feel like I'm just a click bunny where I just click as many things as I can to get something done. So we've got to figure out how to regain the autonomy, but we also need to hold physicians accountable who aren't necessarily doing things in the best interest of the patient. So that's that's a balance we've got to find. I think people look for for physicians who who they trust aren't aren't owned, you know, and and so I think uh, you're right that 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 you as an oncologist don't make any money off of vaccinating people, but but there there is something far more important than making a little money on a vaccine, which is your your reputation, right, and your and your um your respect, you know, within the the sort of um ecosystem, healthcare ecosystem, you know, whether it's, whether it's with, you know, insurers or it's with, with uh, the, the hospitals or the, or your colleagues. Right. And so I think that's the other piece is, is again, I think a lot of people, when you ask them about, uh, ask them these questions, it's not, um, I, I find that very rarely is it about logic, you know, on both sides, it's, it's a lot of it's tribal and a lot of it's a gut feeling, you know, about, Hey, there's something here that I don't trust, or there's something here I'm not, um, and, and I'm 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 kind of going with my gut here. This just doesn't feel right. And I and I think coming back to the holistic thing is is as physicians, there's a there in in the ancient you know um, con- conception of liberal arts and and the the art of rhetoric, which is just being persuasive and teaching. You've got ethos, logos, and pathos, right? You're you've got um, your your ethos is your, you know, your, your, um, your ability to, to, to your credibility, your path, your logos, which is just the truth, the evidence as we're talking about. And then you've got the pathos, which is just the emotional part of it. The, 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 the personal human, you know, uh, story part of it. And I think you, to be persuasive, you have to really hit on all of those. And, and I think the thing that we've seen this year, which is a bad thing, uh, probably is that you've got, um, the ethos of an MD has has lost value, right? Like people don't trust healthcare workers, don't don't trust healthcare systems, 
don't trust healthcare companies anymore the way that they did just automatically before. And so I think that has to be sort of rehabilitated, um, at least on a personal level with your patients, you know, and I think if you can do that, then you're going to have a lot more success getting them to listen to the other bits. Um, yeah, you're totally right. And I will tell you, you know, when people talk about their gut and how they how there's just something in their gut that makes them not want to get the vaccine. I actually I give them this example. So I'm a physician. I believe in science. I believe in vaccines. Despite that, when I took my daughter, my firstborn, for her first set of vaccinations, because of all of the misinformation online about how the flu shot causes, you know, I'm not even going to say what it the data is because it's all debunked. But there was there's data out there that that is misrepresented showing that vaccines have some detrimental impacts on children. And I know it was I know it's false information. I know the person who wrote it was debunked and basically was the paper was thrown out. But even though I knew all of the facts I knew, I still felt a little bit nervous the first time my daughter got vaccines. Sure. And not because I thought there was anything wrong with it, but because that just shows how pervasive this information is and how it can sleep into your subconscious. And so I tell my patients that so they know, listen, I totally understand the gut feeling and that feeling of, oh, I don't know. Should I be getting it? Should I not? And I told them, I said, you may not be, you know, somebody who's in the dark web or reading all of the nonsense that's out there. I said, but for sure, if you've been living in this society for the last two years, you have heard some of these things. You've definitely heard some of the things that people are talking about. So whether you believe it or not, it may seep into your subconscious. And that might be what you're feeling in your gut, where you're wondering, is there any truth to what this one person at this one dinner told me? And I said, and that's okay, because you should be asking questions. But ask me those questions because then I can give you the answers that has the cur- the data that is backed up and peer reviewed behind it to tell you why I'm so passionate about you getting this done and why I think this will save your life. And so I think that, again, that vulnerability and that that being being open with my patients and saying, I've been where you're sitting. I understand. I've been a patient. My kids have been patients. I understand where your fear is coming from. Let me help you navigate it and make you feel better about this decision that you're making because it is the right decision. So I think that goes back to to everything that we've that we've kind of talked about today. Yeah, no, it's it's it, it totally does, and it's it's exactly what I mean, our uh, you pay, the our healthcare system needs more doctors who are willing to do the hard work of of educating and and being a teacher, you know, to their patients, and that and that requires. Um, a willingness to be vulnerable and to connect with them, to understand them, you know, on their level. Um, and uh, and it's something that I think has been lost. I mean, it's a bit, it's part of the art of medicine, um, part of the art of being a healer. And uh, and I think it's been lost somewhere where where this this the practice of medicine has become more and more and more kind of industrialized. It's it's more subspecialty upon subspecialty, and nobody's really actually connecting with the patient and. Um, and it's all about labs and, you know, and tests. And, and, uh, so I, I think it's a great message. Um, and I'm excited you're, you're doing it. And, and also, you know, as a, as a, as a, a, a woman physician and as, as a mother, you know, the, the work that you're doing to, um, to help encourage, um, women in medicine to, to, um, to find their way and find, find and, 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 and create more opportunities, I think is, is fantastic. We're, uh, we've, we've gone for about an hour. This is, it's gone very fast, but, um, I, I want to get, kind of leave you with the floor. What, 
for one, uh, tell us where people can find um, your your organizations and the things you're working on and stay in touch with you. I know you've got a great uh, uh, social media presence and a lot of following there, but um, tell us that. And then, and then, yeah, what's, you know, any, any parting thoughts um, that you'd like to leave us with? Sure. So people can find me on Twitter at ShikaJaneMD. Okay. Um, I have a website, ShikaJaneMD.com. Um, and if you want to learn more about women in medicine, we've got a website, womeninmedicinesummit.org. Um, and if you want to learn more about impact, our website is impact4hc.com. Um, and you can find me on all social medias. I'm always at ShikaJaneMD. It's just easy for me to remember. Yeah. Um, and then my parting thoughts, you know, we have been through a really rough two years. Healthcare workers were suffering from burnout and really leaving the field in droves even before this pandemic. And I'm just I'm really sad to see how much burnout and how much stress and how much frustration I'm seeing from my colleagues as we enter into year three of this pandemic. Um, I want to tell my physician colleagues and nurse colleagues and healthcare worker colleagues that if you're struggling with burnout or if you're having, you know, feeling challenged, if you feel like you want to leave, talk to your mentors, talk to your friends, reach out to me or somebody like me who might be able to help you figure out yeah. next steps and how to kind of manage that burnout because we're losing so many amazing people from the healthcare field. And, you know, for many people, it's the right decision, but I think our patients in the long term are really going to suffer. So we've got to fix our system. We've got to, you know, that the healthcare leaders out there, we need to fix things. This is not the way healthcare is supposed to be. This is not what people signed up for. We need to fix the system before we have a mass exodus that we're already starting to see. Um, I just I I want to also applaud all of the healthcare workers out there because even though it's been a horrible, horribly hard couple of years, I've seen amazing things come out of my friends and colleagues. They've done incredible work, and I'm still so inspired by the people that I work with, that I see. Um, and I'm I'm always cautiously optimistic, but we need some big changes to come down the pipeline in order for us to survive this this pandemic. Thank you for all the work you're doing um, and and for the way that I think you are um, uh, an, an inspiration to physicians who are hopefully listening to this and thinking about, you know, their own careers and the kinds of uh, changes maybe that they they should start uh, pursuing. So thanks for coming on Branch Out with Sycamores. It's been a lot of fun and uh, we'll definitely stay in touch. Thanks for having me. This is a great time. You have just listened to Branch Out, a podcast by Sycamore hosted by me, Larson Hicks. Please go ahead and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss the next one. 